Shalom, and welcome to the Jewish Yogi Podcast with Emily Hertzfeld, the podcast that explores Jewish thought, belief, and practice with yoga, philosophy, values, and practice. Please feel free to reach out on Instagram at the Jewish Yogi or email at the Jewish Yogi at gmail.com. Hello. Hello, Emily. Hi, it's nice to meet you, Stephen. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm very excited about this. Okay, so welcome to the Jewish Yogi with Emily Hertzfeld. Today we're speaking with Stephen J. Gold. He is the founder director of Torah Veda, formerly Yoga and Judaism Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And he has authored several books, including Om Shalom, Yoga and Judaism, a good book that I have, Ivri, The Essence of Hebrew Spirituality, a good book I have to get, but I was reading online, and Torah Portion Summaries with Insights from the Perspective of a Jewish Yogi. And that is another good book that I have. He's been teaching meditation and related classes on Indian and Jewish mysticism for many years. So welcome and thank you for your time and your information you're going to share. So I always like to start off with putting out there yoga through a Jewish lens, yoga philosophy and practice and Jewish observance and practice. When you hear that, what comes to mind and what would you like to start off with? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, for me, it was it's probably more Judaism through a yoga lens, because I grew up Jewish and I actually had a fairly, a modern Orthodox Hebrew school training and bar mitzvah and some Torah study, but that was all through age 13 or 14. And we were not an observant family ourselves. We happened to live a block away from a modern Orthodox synagogue, and my parents did want us to be have that exposure. So it could have been a conservative or a reform, it probably wouldn't have mattered. We weren't observant at home, but I certainly did have an influence from going to the shul there. And, you know, we observed the normal holidays that relatively non-observant Jewish people observe and all of that. I pretty much abandoned Judaism and actually became an atheist before I finished high school. And when I went off to college, that's when I got introduced to yoga and got really immersed before too long in the whole Indian Vedic tradition and got very immersed in it for many years. And there was always something along the way that a little voice in the back of my head said was, you have to re-explore your Jewish roots. So as an adult, following that, I eventually saw it was time to look back at Judaism as an adult because I really only learned it as a child. And But I was looking and studying Judaism through the eyes of, a, of an adult who had practiced yoga and meditation and for many years. So my my study of Judaism certainly was looked at through the lens of yoga more than the other way around for me. Interesting. Very interesting. So with your journey of first being a Jew and then getting into the Vedic tradition, and a lot of people in Western America talk about yoga, but you changed it from the yoga and Judaism center to the Torah Veda center. How did you come to be interested in yoga? And then what influence did it have on you going forward? My first 
exposure to yoga was at college. I had heard that there was a student there who was a few uh, levels ahead who just out of the goodness of his heart was not as a class or anything, you know, a registered class, but he was just teaching yoga like early in the morning to whoever wanted to come and sort of a buzz to go to Andy's class. I was just thinking about him the other day. So that was my first exposure to yoga of any kind was in college through this guy, Andy. I, I don't know if I ever knew his last name, but he was a pretty advanced Hatha yogi. I mean, he did some poses. I went regularly to his class and, and learned basically Hatha. He was just very Hatha oriented. And I had the good fortune of my a roommate in college uh, was just a little bit more advanced than me in all kinds of things including just general intelligence. Uh, but he was exposed to Vedic spirituality before I was and sort of was really my first guide and mentor going deeper than just the Hatha yoga aspect. He actually saw Ram Das speak very early in the age of Ram Das. Wow. And he had the original version of Be Here Now, which was not a book. It was a box. And in the box were various things and implements, including some of the pages from what became the book. And yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And he had gotten into TM and he prevailed upon me to get initiated into TM as many people of my generation. That was when TM was really big in America. So I did get initiated in, in TM, which uh, there you have a focus uh, initially almost exclusively on meditation and nothing else but meditation. The deeper you got into TM, they in, did introduce a samasana, some pranayama, but it was all just as a supplement to the meditation. So I, I, that was my introduction on a deeper level and more philosophical level and certainly on the meditation angle. And eventually I uh, happened upon my own, I call him, really, I, I refer to him as a spiritual master, but he was really like my spiritual father through the Himalayan Institute of Yoga Science and Philosophy with the headquarters in American Honesdale, Pennsylvania, uh, Swami Rama. And he was one of several of these Swamis who came over in the mid to late 60s, that whole wave. He was very good friends with Swami Satchidananda. And he was also very good friends with uh, Rabbi Joseph Gelberman. I don't know if you knew who he was, but he was out of New York and he was probably one of the earlier Jewish yogis back in the early 60s even. He had been raised in a in the Satmar Hasidic tradition and came from Hungary and sort of had some kind of revelation where he just became one of these new age rabbis a la uh, Shlomo Karlbach. Bach, but he wasn't a singer. And he was based in New York City. He lived in New York City for a long time. And he, he passed away a few years ago. But he was very good friends with Swami Rama and Swami Satchidananda. He did Swami Satchidananda's eulogy. They had a pact between them that whoever went first, the other would do their eulogy. They were that close. I, and I had the good pleasure of spending some very quality one-on-one -on -one time with Rabbi Gellerman. And he just a very wonderful, sweet person. But he was a really authentic Jewish yogi, way, way back. It says here that you there's one of those people that you studied with, correct? Yeah. And he actually, he's the first endorsement on the back of yoga and Judaism. Take a look. I got Yes, it is. I see. Yes. I, I was very, I wanted to get an endorsement from someone from the Jewish tradition, someone from the Western esoteric tradition, who was Shirley Chambers, who I studied. Actually, it was basically theosophy-based Kabbalah 
And then Masewa Barati was actually a nice Jewish girl from New York City who, uh, in my yoga tradition, uh, females are don't take on the name Swami. They take mm -hmm. on Ma. And she became an ordained Swami in our tradition. And I had the great pleasure of meeting her and knowing her and spending time with her. I think she's become an Indian citizen now and resides pretty permanently in India. So yes, I, was, I, I really wanted to get uh, endorsements from the three of them. And Robert Gelderman was very helpful in giving me some guidance in um, developing the book. Okay, so. great. So you started in college in your yoga tradition, and you spoke about some of your other stops along the way. So tell me more about how you got enmeshed with the Jewish learning that you do now with it, and how you mm -hmm. got to where you are today. I had these little voices, like, go, go to your roots, go to your roots. And I knew that if I was going to get involved, it would. I, I was not into the religious aspect of anything. I was into the spiritual aspect. My only interest in religion was the spirituality that the religion communicated, not the observances, not necessarily the holidays and the observances and all that. It was the spirituality. I was a philosophy religion major in, in college, but that was always my focus. And actually, my first introduction was a little early in college, where we were required to take a comparative religion course, and I was immediately attracted to the Eastern religions then. I mean, I just was drawn to them like a magnet. So that was my first real introduction, other than the book Siddhartha, which I read while I was still in high school, sort of an introduction to Buddhism. Those are my earliest influences, but you asked about how it all developed. So much later in life, I kept just getting these little nudges that I need to re-explore Judaism as an adult. And I knew the way to do it would be through Kabbalah. And I, I, you may not uh, know, but I, it, my organization, the Himalayan Institute, I actually w worked at and taught yoga at a center that we had for a while in New York City. It was East West Books, I've been there. I remember when it was open, I used to buy, I also in college, I was drawn to Eastern religions. I used to did Taiji for many, many years. I was drawn. Okay. I, yeah, I bought books there. Oh, yes. I remember East so, so it was both a bookstore and it was also a center of the Himalayan Institute. So okay, we had that I didn't know, but I knew the bookstore. So I was an assistant manager and the music buyer so and magazine buyer. So if you ever bought any magazines or music, I was the one who ordered all that stuff. <laughs> so, you know, it was sort of around that time while I was still there. And, you know, I picked up a few of the books on Kabbalah and I just couldn't. They were there was just a, a wall. They were very convoluted. They were very complicated and very intimidating. And, and I just put it aside for a while. But sometime later, I moved from New York to Atlanta to go to law school and met my wife here and raised a family here. And the nudges kept coming. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll try to find a Kabbalah center in Atlanta and see if, if that'll work. And I found this Kabbalah center, but I had no idea there was such a thing as anything other than Jewish Kabbalah. But there actually is a tradition going back to the Middle Ages of quote, Christian or theosophical uh, Western tradition Kabbalah, which uses the Jewish sources and then sort of goes off 
on its own theosophical Western Christian tangents. And that was the center that was the only real center going on in Atlanta. And I went and checked it out. And, you know, I was okay. I was sort of into comparative religion anyway, and tolerant of other faiths and traditions and practices and went to an introductory lecture, talked to the founder, got some introductory materials that she recommended. And that was my entree. And actually the first, the book, when I, I asked after an introductory lecture, I asked the founder who did the lecture, well, you know, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about this. Is there any introductory book that you would recommend? And the book she recommend was by Zev Shimon Halevi, if you're familiar with him. He's one of the people I mentioned. He's British. He has some very good books on Kabbalah. And he, she recommended one of his books as a good introduction. And I later did have a workshop with him in which I brought him my, my book and, and his book. And he signed his book for me. And I signed my book <laughs> and gifted it to him. He came to America. He had a little group in Atlanta who studied with him. And I was fortunate enough to come across him. But he's Jewish. But she recommended his book. And then I, I took this course in Atlanta through the center here, which was an in very involved, detailed course with maybe many people beginning, but not many people ended, <laughs> finished. It was two and a half years meeting once a week, maybe two hour sessions once a week. You had homework that was both reading and writing exercises and also meditation exercises. And your homework was checked. <laughs> Real school. It wasn't, it wasn't graded. It was just reviewed though. And I took it very seriously. I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. Jump in. I'm going to dive in and, and do everything that they prescribe to do. Just like I did when I earlier studied at the Himalayan Institute. I'm like, all right, I am here to become a yogi and really immerse myself in this. And anything that was recommended, I did. And I did, I took it all seriously and very earnestly. And, and it was the same with this. I mean, there are some people who took things less, more or less seriously than I did, but I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to jump in all the way. And it drilled the basic concepts of the tree of life and the Spiro. It drilled it into you in, in a teaching method that basically was part of the teaching method was like program learning. It was very Skinner-esque program yes. learning, but then it, it branched off from that. So the, the substantive material was drilled into you. We got our own trees of life that we cut out and we colored in and we named. So there was all these things that reinforced your book knowledge. So hands-on knowledge. And I knew all the Sphero, I knew the past. We studied Tarot. We studied the Jewish letters that were on the Tarot. It was very, very in-depth. There was a meditation on every sphero and every path. And every two weeks, we had a new meditation that was an experiential meditation on a sphero or on a path connecting to sphero. And it was two and a half years. And there was open-ended discussion. You could ask any questions you wanted. We had wide-ranging discussions about this, that, and the other. It was a very comprehensive course. And that gave me an entree that I wasn't intimidated by the Jewish sources. So from there, I started studying Jewish sources on my own and going to seminars with like Ben Halevi or whoever came into town. I would go and do a seminar or a weekend workshop or whatever. And then I understood the Jewish sources better 
and I understand the language, the language they were using because this course drilled it in my head. So it was very helpful. And I ended up actually teaching there. I taught Torah portion summaries, started out as a book called On Torah and Judaism, which originally was a series of lectures that I gave at the Karin Kabbalah Center, bringing the Jewish perspective to their teaching. And they allowed me to present there. Uh, and I had a series of lectures there. And it was sort of out of those lectures that what eventually became Torah portion summaries evolved, actually. You know, we had a very nice interrelationship. And I was a, a teacher there for a while. But I wasn't teaching their course. I had my own little own side course. course on Torah and Judaism. And several of their students came to my course, plus other people. So it was fun. So now I'm hearing the Jewish piece of it. Tell me how the two different learnings come together for you. So in exploring adult Judaism and Kabbalah particularly, and before too long, when I started studying Jewish sources, I was studying what I would call secondary sources. My first book was God is a Verb. But God is a Verb was a great opening book. Yeah, I have that. That's a great book. And you know, I was reading other books like that and really got into the Jewish renewal authors. It seemed like anybody who interested me ended up being connected with Jewish renewal and Reb Zalman, Shaka Shalomi. I mean, I would find an author and I didn't know of their connect and then it would end up, yeah, they were connected. So uh, they were in the forefront of a new Hasidic infused Hasidic learning and but breaking some of the traditional boundaries. And then I realized, you know, all these books were referring to the Torah. I mean, that's the source, right? So I said, all right, I, I've got to go to the source and supplement the source with the secondary materials, but go to the source. So the source is the Torah. Everything comes out of the Torah, right? So I said, all right, I got to start studying the Torah itself because it's the source. And I seriously engaged in my own self-study of Torah. I knew going into it that I had to be reading two different translations at a minimum with two different annotations because I knew there was going to be differences and every author and every translator was going to have their own agenda and their own yeah. way of looking at things. So I chose, I wanted to go traditional. So I chose the Art Scroll edition and Arya Kaplan. And I studied them simultaneously. I would read the, both of them at the same time. One read. very technical and one very spiritual. Right. Nice right. balance. Right. So I thought that would be a good balance to start with. And I read all the footnotes and all the annotations because I, again, it was something I was going to do seriously and I was going to totally dive in. So those were the first two translations with extensive annotations I read and studied. And then from there, I just got into other secondary sources and studying here and studying there and Jewish renewal. And my one and only trip to Israel was led by Rabbi uh, Marsha Prager and her husband, Cantor. I have to think about what his name was. But he, they led it along with an intern they had and their Jewish renewal. She actually is still the rabbi of... Salman Shakhtar Shalomi's synagogue in Philadelphia, if you've heard of her. But she was wonderful. She is just wonderful. And the two of them working together, her and her husband, a trained, traditionally trained cantor. I mean, their interactions were just wonderful. And you could go to Marsha with the most difficult, obtuse, strange verses from the Torah, and she could make sense out of them for you. It didn't matter what it was. The red cow, no problem. Anything. <laughs> 
she could make sense out of them. It was a great week and a half, two weeks, whatever it was, because it wasn't just touring Israel. It was having sessions with them and studying and stuff. So that was a very good experience. So that just opened up a lot of doors. And I just got thirsty about studying on my own and studying whenever I could with other sources. In subsequent years, to my initial readings, I read other commentaries. One year, I did all the commentaries by, oh, he just passed away, the head rabbi of Israel, the former head rabbi of Israel. Jonathan Sachs. Yes. I read all of Jonathan Sachs' commentaries one year. I read all of uh, Rabbi Oscar Arthur Waskow's commentaries another year. I read some H.com commentaries one year, and I read Chabad commentaries one year. So I kept adding on and adding on to get different perspectives. But going back to, but I was looking all of that through my yogic meditation Vedic lens. And that's when I started seeing all these incredible connections. Such as? Well, I mean, there's some that are simple and obvious and some that are much more subtle. Some that I don't think anyone else has seen yet. A few. But many, I, I would have this aha moment and connection, and somebody else saw that connection or had that insight or whatever. Well, a very obvious connection is the Jewish star is also the heart, heart is symbol of the heart chakra. Right, which is why I use that for my, my website. Local, right, <laughs> official yoga and Judaism Torah Veda symbol, logo. Excellent. I took Om and stuck it in the middle of the Jewish star. <laughs> One of the things that fascinated me very early on in Genesis, in the first few lines, when they talk about a great river flowing out of Eden, and that river separated in the four main tributaries, two of which are pretty easily identified, apparently, by as the Tigris and Euphrates. Another one, there's differing opinions. And then there's this other one, um, the Pishon. Okay. So the Pishon and the other three are named. The Pishon is the only one that it goes into some detail about. I'm looking at my book to make sure I get that name right. Pishon, yes. So the other, you know, it names the first three and then it says the Pishon. But it, and it doesn't say anything about the other three. And it says, it talks about the Pishon and it says, the Pishon encompasses the whole of the land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedalach and the Shoham stone in that land. Okay? Well, that piques my interest. Why is the Torah focusing only on the Pishon and going to this description of the Pishon, where it doesn't say any, anything about the other three other than name them? And it talks about the land of Havilah. So a couple of the annotations, of course, as you probably well know, no authority in Jewish Talmudic study ever agrees with any other authority on anything. Okay. <laughs> yes, um, Jews, you get 12 answers. Yeah, there is a thread of authority that another person you may want to contact, Audie Goslin, picked up on that. He's Canadian, is that Havilah, not all the sources, but some sources contend that Havilah was India. Hmm. Okay. Curious. So, all right. So you have this thread of some traditional Jewish sources. I'm not talking about far off new age stuff. I'm talking about some traditional Talmudic sources 
saying that Havila was India. And there is this one tributary of the main headwaters coming out of Eden, encompassing the whole land of Havila, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And there is the Bedalach and the Shoham stone. Well, what about all that? And this is why it's good to read the translations and you lose some things in translations. The Shoham stone shows up again in Exodus and in Leviticus. When they're constructing the breastplate of the high priest, lo and behold, what is on the breastplate? Shoham stones. Uh-huh. I find that very interesting. And one of the key mantras in the Vedic tradition is a mantra called Soham. You've never heard of the Soham mantra? I'm not familiar with that tradition. Okay. Well, sometimes it's called the Soham mantra, and sometimes they reverse it, and they call it the Hamsa mantra. Hamsa means swan, but it's Soham, Hamsa, you know, which one comes first. So Soham, in my tradition, it's called the universal mantra. It's not specific to my tradition, but it's part of the mantras of my tradition. It's called the universal mantra. Well, Soham sounds, sure sounds a lot like Shoham. And the Sh, of course, you know, if the dot and the Shin is over here, it's a Sh. If the dot and the Shin is over here, it's a S, right? Yes. So in the Vedic tradition, there are Shiva lingams. You know that Shiva lingams, right? I'll be honest, I don't. Wow, there's so much you know about yoga, because I went and looked at your website some more, and I read some of your blogs, and there's stuff there that I didn't know from yoga that you know, but now there's stuff that I thought you would know that I don't know. Thank you. That's why we come together. We're learning from each other. Right, right. Thank you for helping me. So in certain Vedic traditions, the Shiva Lingam is a very big deal. Well, it's Shiva and and Yoni. So the Shiva Lingam is the representation of the male sexual organ, and the Yoni is the representation of the female organ. And the Shiva basically is just a upright cylinder, and the Yoni looks... Like, like an opening, maybe? Like this? Well, it's a, it's a circle with an opening, yes. Okay, what is a womb, right? So the yoni is just like a circle, but at one end of the circle, the circle doesn't closes and there's two lines going out and there's so there's an opening to the rest of the world. And then obviously the sperm would come through that opening and go into the circle. So Shiva and yoni are very significant, male, female. So in some traditions, particularly Shiva's in the traditions in India, the Shiva stone, they say that people have gone in rivers and remarkably removed from these rivers, totally polished, totally shaped Shiva stones. They're perfectly cylindrical shaped stones which have a dome on the top. They haven't been crafted by humans, is the tradition. That a true Shiva stone is not crafted by a human. It is discovered. And then it becomes a very key element in their worship and all of that. So here's the Shoham stone. And here are these stones that are put on the breastplate of the high priest. There's an array of stones that represent each of the tribes. The Shohams are used to represent the Ten Commandments, I believe. But, and then one of them is also used as one of the representatives of one of the tribes. And then there's other stones used. Each tribe is its own stone on the breastplate. But there's also five Shohams here and five Shohams there representing the Ten Commandments. Well, I realized they talked about Shoham coming from the land of the good gold and the Bedalock stone from the land of Pavila. I'm like, wow. So my speculation is that the Shoham stones 
that were placed on the ark. And the shoham are mentioned a few times in the Torah. There's some references. Well, that just seems like an incredible connection to me. And I am convinced that the shoham stones were shivalingams. But that is strictly my speculation. Why not? Why not? So in Jewish practice, monotheistic, mm-hmm. some people say that there's an issue with yoga because there are Hindu connections and so forth. Right. So what can you say to people who say that yoga is not in, it doesn't it's lead, not idol worship. The big it's deal not, is it's, it's, yeah. it's not idol worship. Yoga can be idol worship. That's not great for Jews. What do you right. want to say about that? I've seen and heard and participated in a lot of discussions back and forth about this. In fact, Marcus Free is an expert on that. I asked him about that. You should ask him about that. He knows a lot more detail than I do. I mean, I went to India once. I knew I would probably, I wanted to go to Israel. I want to go to India. I went to India once. I went to Israel once. Certainly when I went to India, I quickly had an observation that the commandment against idol worship didn't make it there. Okay. Okay. And the other disturbing thing to Jewish people who go to India is there's swastikas all over the place. Right. And that's a tough one for Jews. But the the point is that Hitler stole the swastika from the Indians. The swastika is an ancient Vedic symbol way before. Anyway, my feeling is, A, personally, I am just into the spirituality of it. And I know there have been some very high level rabbis say, as long as you just do the TM and you don't do all the other stuff and don't do the puja, you're good. Sort of been the main edict from uh, some pretty orthodox sources even. And I guess it doesn't bother me that much. The idol worship, again, I'm not into ritual or sim. uh, Well, I'm into some symbols, but I'm not into the rituals or the observances necessarily of any tradition. I'm into the spirituality. So it sort of, it doesn't mean a lot to me. But for Jewish people who are concerned whether that is crossing the border to idol worship, again, there have been some pretty traditional rabbinic sources that say, as long as you watch out a little bit, don't worry about it. You know, then you get into, well, should you be chanting in Sanskrit or not? To me, sound is sound. And all languages can have some common phonemes. And languages develop all from verbal traditions that are all phonetic based. There are some sounds that don't make it into some languages and make it into others. My little bit of knowledge of the Hebrew language and of the Sanskrit language is there are some incredible similarities in some of their little quirks. Like Sanskrit has a big issue with the V and the W, and sometimes the V becomes a W, and so does Jew- so does Hebrew. I mean, there's all this weirdness. The about- W becomes the V because he right. really have a W. Well, Yahweh versus Yahweh, and you know, there's other situations where is it a W or a V, and and even in English, what's a a W look like? It doesn't look like two U's. It looks like two V's, right? Right. Sanskrit has the same thing. Sometimes it's swaha and sometimes it's swaha. So it, just little quirks like that, but it's all phonemes. But as far as the idol worship thing, you can go the Arya Kaplan route. Don't do Sanskrit mantras, only do Hebrew mantras. So picking up on that, if I may, I was looking in your book, the one I don't have, the Ivri, the essence of Hebrew spirituality, and you speaking there about Jewish mantras. 
Right. I wanted to ask you about that Hebrew versus Sanskrit and what Jewish mantras. Tell me more about that and the power of it. And I give a lot of credit to Arya Kaplan. I think in his day, he went out on a limb and was ostracized by a lot of people for divulging as much as he divulged. And he divulged it in a very scholarly way. I mean, he he went out of his way to find some very esoteric scripts, texts and stuff that had never been translated and brought out, I think very convincingly, that meditation was a fairly common practice in traditional Jewish practice and got eroded. But going back probably even to the 15, 1600s, it was there. And probably much more ancient than that, it was there. It was part of Jewish practice. And there's authority that traditional Shabbat service would be to go to shul, sit in silence for an hour, then do the service, then sit in silence for another hour, okay? Well, what are they doing during that silent period, okay? And he brought out that there are sources and source texts that indicate that mantra kind of practice utilizing Hebrew phrases, mostly from the Torah, were practice that sort of got obscured. Why do you think that is, by the way? That it got obscured? Yeah. I think it probably had a lot to do with who was the big false messiah guy. Uh, Can't think of his name, but there was one big one who was like the new age rabbi of the 16, 1700s, whatever. But there was a big wave of Kabbalistic mysticism and all that stuff that this guy had propagated. And when he eventually became, was unearthed as a fraud, or I don't know if he was really a fraud, but when he had to choose between having his head chopped off or professing Islam, he chose to profess Islam. And that was the end of that. Shabbatai V. There was a tremendous backlash to anything having to do with Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah, or because of the disgrace that Shabbatai Zvi brought to all of that. There was a big backlash. And I think part of that backlash was, don't tell us about Kabbalah. Don't tell us about meditation. Don't tell us about any of that stuff. We don't want to hear it. It's verboten. And then there was the big renaissance, you could say, even in Orthodox worlds, of mind over heart. And to me, this has been a tragedy. I noticed that you study Chabad. I studied in depth with Chabad for a while here in Atlanta. And the patriarchal nature of it and the whole idea that the mind is superior to the heart, the heart has to follow the intellect. The intellect is our, is our way out of the morass of sin and being led astray. I think it's really tragic because I think the higher heart should be guiding the higher mind and not the other way around. I I have the higher heart and the lower heart. You know, they just talk about mostly the heart being our animal nature. In traditional, I mean, the Chabad who I studied with, the heart was the source of animal or animal nature. Our blood conveys our animal stuff. Our nervous system, our brain conveys our higher intellect. And the intellect has to be the master over the heart because the heart is only going to lead us astray. But even in those teachings, there is mention of the circumcised heart. 
I remember reading that in the, yes. the Tanya. It was in the Tanya. I remember I, I like didn't what does that really mean? I want to ask my rabbi about that. One one view is well, that only happens when Messiah comes. Okay. I don't think it only happens when Messiah comes, but there is this idea of not only the male circumcision, but of a circumcised tongue, of a circumcised heart. What does all that mean? So obviously in Eastern traditions, there's the lower heart of the animal nature, but then there's the higher heart. And the Jewish star is a symbol of the higher heart and moderating the higher level energies and the lower energies. And they are reconciled. And the higher triangle is the ascending and the lower, the other triangle is the descending and they're, they're synthesized in the heart. And yes, there's a little bit of it in mystical Judaism at the circumcised heart. But the prevalent view is study, 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 study. And then the emotional side, the bhakti side of traditional Judaism is doing, you know, dancing, going to synagogue and praying and, and davening and singing. So they have the bhakti outlet in addition to the intellectual outlet. They have an outlet. They have a way to express it. But study is still the key, right? The intellect mastering the mind. And then you had the pushback to the Baal Sam Shem Tov by whatever other move. Well, Masar was a pushback. And then there was another main movement in, in Europe. Yeah, the that, Lithuanian yeah, law. The yeah, the study, it. study, study. Yeah, was the pushback. No, 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 Baal Shem Tov. Get, we don't want your stuff. That's verboten. We don't want ecstatic this or that or the other. We're going to study. Whatever you asked that spawned me on to that tangent, there we are. It's a good tangent. Um, <laughs> and it's a good place. I, we were talking about originally Jewish mantras, Hebrew versus Sanskrit. And I also want to ask you about Jewish healing meditation. Because often when I read about meditation, it's meditation. You add the word of healing. You can say a little bit about that since that's in the book also. Well, I was sort of spawned on by that because I was moving in circles and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff about healing and healing meditations and this, that, and the other. I went to this little workshop by this group that are involved with what's called pranic healing. And I was like, I came from that and I, I sort of incorporated principles from that for people who do want to be involved in not just meditating for themselves, because that's one of the critiques of meditation is it can be self, very self-absorbed. And although you're supposed to go beyond yourself, it can be very self-absorbing and insular. And, and in my tradition that I studied with in, in Atlanta, we always did healing meditations to heal people, to heal the world, to heal the earth was part of what every session did. So I, from my Jewish studies, I just came up with this Ruach El Shaddai as incorporating a way for people who want to do a healing meditation, not only for themselves, for other people, other beings, or the world at large, whatever. Um, I incorporated principles from my theosophical Kabbalistic training with the pranic healing training, with my knowledge of mystical Judaism. And I just sort of came up with this healing meditation practice that incorporates a lot of those principles. And I call it Ruach El Shaddai, Breath of Balance. I love that. I have to get that book. That's on my, my list of things to get. So I want to ask you well, about... I mean, yoga, that's in Yoga and Judaism, second edition. You know, I have the first edition. Ah, uh, you had the first edition. I have the first edition. From it's in Yoga and Judaism, second edition. One of the reasons I made the second edition, there were a few reasons, but one was to 
put that chapter in that wasn't in the first edition. Okay, I gotta get that next edition. Okay. So if I can ask you about when you started the, it started off as the Yoga and Judaism Center. Now it's called Torah Veda. So tell me right. about what inspired you to start that. Why bother if there were places to study Kabbalah there are places to study yoga? And what did it do for you and how has it evolved over the years? Why did well, you change the name? Just, yeah, just to get the name changed out of the way. I liked Yoga and Judaism Center, but I was teaching around here and there. And people, regardless of what the, the materials said about the courses, I studied Hatha in depth. A few different periods in my life, I'd studied and practiced Hatha in depth. In the Himalayan Institute, Hatha was the ground work. You, you began with the Hatha. They ingrained us in the Ashtanga Yoga, a limb path that I know you made reference to. That was the grounding. And Hatha was per, certainly part of that. But and I still do a bit of a Hatha practice to this day. But that's not been my focus. My focus has been on the Raja Yoga aspect, what I call yoga beyond the mat. Okay. And no matter how much I would emphasize that in all of my materials when I was doing classes and stuff. When they saw a guy from Yoga and Judaism Center was coming, everyone brought mats. I wasn't going to do it. I, you know, that, the, and there was nothing in the program that said I was. And I even said, this is yoga beyond the mat, yoga beyond the mat. And a friend of mine, Rabbi Mitch Cohen, said, Steve, you're never going to, you got to lose it. You just got to lose it. If, you, if you're going to teach courses under yoga and Judaism, people are going to come expecting to do asanas. And you're, you're never going to, you're, you're fighting a losing battle, okay? And then I said, all right, Torah Vayam. Okay, I like that. Okay. I love that Torah answer. is the, the main scripture of Judaism, and Veda is the main scripture of Indian spirituality. Why not? So... I changed it and Mitch said, congratulations. As to why started it all, it really started sort of inadvertently as an outgrowth of the classes that I was teaching at the Kabbalah Center. Eventually we moved to my house. I was teaching Torah portion summaries at my house. So I had a little group of, a Torah study group that we were studying the Torah using my book as the basis. And I think right around that time, I had also published Yoga and Judaism. And one of my students said, you got to get on the web, man. You, you got to get on the web. You have, have to have a website and push your books and your teachings through the website. I said, okay. And she really put it as terms of, a, of an author's blog. She said, you need to have an author's blog. So I started the Yoga and Judaism Blogspot site as an author's blog, and I just kept it going. But it was just by that person's suggestion. I do have that separate website now that's Torah Veda Meditation. That website, .blogspot.com, that website just has... So when I would teach a standard meditation course, I had all these handouts. And I would pre-print all these handouts and, you know, knew how many people were coming and make sure I had enough. And then each session, there was a, a group of handouts. And I got to the point where I don't know if these people are really using these handouts or not. Some of them are supplemental material. So I decided I was just to take all those handouts and upload them to a separate site. And then when I taught a course, I say, hey, if you want the handout, you can look at it there. Or if you want to print it out, you can print it out there. And there's also other supplemental material and videos and audios there. It's your one-stop shop for this meditation class. So that was the evolution of that. 
So that has all the handouts and it has some other references, bibliographical references and some audios and maybe some videos. And they're, they're sort of intertwined with the Toraveda website. And how do you find that the Toraveda Center, which started as Yoga and Judaism Center, has evolved over the years? When, did, when was it first established? Probably in the 90s. So it's been a couple of decades. How would you say it's evolved over it's just sort of hanging there. <laughs> it hasn't changed on that. I mean, once I made the major change to Torah Veda, once in a while, if I have a new book, I'll make sure I put it on there and plug it as much as I can. If I'm having a class, I'll go there, announce it there. I do a very irregular quote of the week that's more like a quote of every six weeks. <laughs> so once in a while, I get inspired and I'll do those regularly and then I'll stop and I won't do them regularly. And they're just there for whoever happens to come up upon them. And there is a lot of content. I have a bibliography there. I have book reviews. I have some videos and some audios. It's a good resource for folks who are interested in those connections. And I just think there's a lot of connections. And it fascinates me. It's just sort of my little avocation to delve into the connections, particularly between Vedic mysticism and Torah mysticism. It's just what I've been called to do. So I do it. Excellent. I love that you're pursuing what you found to be your mission in life. And they're the two of the oldest spiritual traditions in the world that have influenced many others. I mean, probably the only one that's sort of really separate from that uh, of a major proportion would be like Taoism was sort of doing its own thing its own way. But what I call Vedic spirituality is originated Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism. Torah spirituality originated Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Then you have Zoroastrianism floating around in between them a little bit. But that's most of the world's religions. It other pretty than much covers it. And indigenous little Aboriginal things here and there. So, yeah, I mean, it covers what most of the world is observing to, in some form or fashion between those two traditions. And I think there's connections there. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The Jewish Yogi. There was so much great stuff with Stephen J. Gold that we're going to do a second part in the podcast in about a month. Next week, we're going to focus on Netzach, the next week of the Omer that we're counting. Please feel free to follow, share, comment, reach out at thejewishyogi at gmail.com or at thejewishyogi on Instagram. Shalom!